ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 21st of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Julian Assange's lawyers have told the UK's High Court the WikiLeaks founder is being prosecuted for standard journalistic practices and is at risk of suffering a flagrant denial of justice. The court's hearing an appeal against a decision to extradite Mr Assange to the United States to face spying charges that come with a potential prison sentence of up to 175 years. Mr Assange wasn't in court. He was too ill to attend. It's likely the last roll of the dice for the 52-year-old in the UK justice system. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside the Royal Courts of Justice for what could be Julian Assange's last stand. His lawyers are seeking leave for a full appeal against the decision to extradite him to the US. This is the most political of cases, with the Australian Parliament last week passing a motion calling on the UK and the US to release the WikiLeaks founder. Outside the court, his wife Stella Assange called on the authorities to drop the case. There is no possibility of a fair trial if Julian is extradited to the United States. He should never be extradited to the United States. He would never be safe. The United States plotted to murder my husband. He is being accused of journalism. Mr Assange's lawyer, Edward Fitzgerald KC, told the court that the treaty that covers extraditions to the US states that extradition shall not be granted for political offences. He made the case that the espionage charges are political because the publishing of classified documents by WikiLeaks exposed wrongdoing by the US government, including what he called torture, rendition and war crimes. And he accused the US of using the criminal justice system to silence his client. Mr Assange was given permission to appear in court but was too ill to attend. WikiLeaks editor-in-chief Kristen Rafson told the ABC he was not in a good state. It doesn't surprise me that he couldn't be in court because uh, I've been observing through my uh, visits throughout every few weeks how his health has deteriorated, his weight loss, his immune system is breaking down, he has had a, a terrible lung infection, uh, so severe that he's, he's basically his ribs broke from coughing. During today's hearings, lawyers for Mr Assange said there was evidence that now shows the US previously hatched a plan to either kill or kidnap Mr Assange, something former CIA chief Mike Pompeo has denied. The UN Special Rapporteur for Torture, Alice Jill Edwards, attended proceedings and told the ABC it's time the case was dropped. I think he is at risk of suicide. The medical evidence is there to suggest that it would be a terrible indictment on our democratic systems that that we would lose another human rights defender in this way. Lawyers for the US government will make their legal arguments tomorrow. They're expected to argue that Mr Assange risked the lives of informants by publishing their names an issue Justice Johnson brought up in the court today. The US Justice Department did not respond to requests for comment. This is Steve Kinane in London for AM. The United States has proposed a temporary ceasefire in Gaza and a significant shift in its position on the war, but has again vetoed the permanent ceasefire called for by other members of the United Nations Security Council. Meanwhile, Prince William has called for an end to the war, saying too many have been killed. Nicole Johnston reports. Sleeping on the ground, in tents, in the mud, in the rain. More than one million Palestinians have been crammed into Gaza's southern city of Rafah, 
There is hunger and fear that more war is to come. Speaking from her rain-sodden tent, Umayyad says without enough food, she lost 25 kilos in one month. There's no milk, no food. Look at this rain. The children here in this mud and puddles. We can't wash their clothes. We can't find water to drink. Bread is expensive. Everything is expensive. Canned food is expensive. The US now says it's time for a break. It's proposing a temporary ceasefire through the UN Security Council. This comes after the US used its veto to block a resolution from Arab nations calling for a permanent ceasefire. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the US ambassador to the United Nations. She says the US wants a pause in the fighting to get more aid in. We cannot support a resolution that would put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy. We look forward to engaging on a text that we believe will address so many of the concerns we all share so that we can have a temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable. And in the UK, a powerful statement from Prince William calling for an end to the conflict, saying too many people have been killed. It's a deliberate decision from the prince to wade into the war. However, while visiting troops, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said again, no amount of pressure will make Israel back off. There is a lot of pressure on Israel from home and abroad to stop the war before we achieve all of its goals, including a deal at any cost to release hostages. We really want to achieve another release and we are also willing to go a long way, but we are not ready to pay any price. In The Hague, the International Court of Justice has heard from South Africa in a case into the legality of Israel's decades-long military occupation of the Palestinian territories. Vusumuzu Madonsel is South Africa's ambassador in the Netherlands. We as South Africans sense, see, hear and feel to our core the inhumane discriminatory policies and practices of the Israeli regime as an even more extreme form of the apartheid that was institutionalised against black people in my country. Israel rejects all these allegations and is not a member of the court. Diplomatic ditherings in New York and the Netherlands, but in Rafa, Amal Zakut says there is no future, no hope in the enclave now. The majority of Palestinians in Gaza and North and Khan Yunis, their house were demolished. The infrastructure also were destroyed and I don't know where the people will go. Gaza resident Miles Akut ending that report by Nicole Johnston. The family of imprisoned Australian man Young Hen will not appeal against his suspended death sentence in China. It says the writer has no faith in the Chinese court system and that his ill health makes it impossible for him to continue his legal fight. Earlier this month, the Beijing court sentenced him to death for espionage, although that punishment is likely to be commuted to life in prison after two years of good behaviour. For more on this, I spoke with our foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. Stephen, Dr Young has always maintained his innocence, so why has he decided not to appeal his sentence? Dr Young's family and supporters say that he's essentially been persecuted by the Chinese state for, for five years. And in a, in a statement that they have released just overnight, they say, quote, there are no grounds to believe that the system that enabled Young's sustained torture and fabricated the charges against him is capable of remedying the injustice against him. They say the Chinese legal system is based 
basically nothing more than an instrument of the party. It's worth noting that pretty much all independent observers agree on that point as well. And therefore, they've simply got no hope that if they did launch an appeal, that there was any chance of, of it being successful. The second reason, and I think this is probably the main reason, is that they believe that there is a better chance of him getting some sort of form of medical relief if they actually waive his right to appeal and allow him to be moved into a new facility. Now, Dr. Young has been kept in pretty awful conditions over the last five years. Uh, Dr. Young's family say he was subjected to harsh conditions, including enforced sleep deprivation, erratic medication, being strapped in what they call a tiger chair in a very, very difficult and uncomfortable position. All of this, they say, have destroyed Dr. Young's health. So they hope that by waiving his right of appeal, he'll get moved to a slightly better facility where he might have access to better medical care. And they also hope that down the track, they might have a better chance of applying for medical parole, uh, allowing him to be released potentially. Stephen, you're our foreign affairs reporter. If I could, on another matter, the head of Australia's Defence Force, General Angus Campbell, has met Indonesia's Defence Minister and President-elect Prabowo Subianto in Jakarta at a time when the federal government is grappling with a fresh asylum boat crisis. Yeah, the timing of this is very interesting. Of course, uh, Prabowo Subianto isn't yet the president. He's uh, only going to take office later this year, around October. He is still defence minister, and so it makes perfect sense that Angus Campbell would meet with him. But it also offers the Australian government a very useful opportunity to have face time for the man who is going to be the next president. And as you mentioned, of course, it comes in the wake of the arrival of 39 men from Indonesia Indonesia via a boat in the very northern reaches of of Western Australia. So the timing here is interesting. I think it's undeniable uh, that even if this trip was planned before this boat arrival, that discussions about Operation Sovereign Borders and Australia's anxieties about boats coming from Indonesia will inevitably feature in these discussions. Of course, the arrival of asylum seekers from Indonesia has long been a source of tension between the two countries. And it will be interesting to learn more from the ADF and Angus Campbell about exactly what was discussed during his trip to Jakarta. Stephen Jedgett's there. There's still no national data on deaths of First Nations women by violence or real-time reporting of women who are missing. There are fresh calls to address that as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are murdered up to 12 times the national average. The Senate inquiry examining the issue is hearing evidence in Brisbane today with renewed calls for a national approach. Political reporter Chantelle Alcouri has this report. The picture remains incomplete. For too long, the nation has remained silent on a crisis. In 2022, a Four Corners investigation revealed at least 315 First Nations women had either gone missing, were murdered or killed in suspicious circumstances since 2000. It found few agencies are keeping data and records. Now, more than 26 months since a Senate inquiry began, desperate calls continue for nationally harmonised data. As a report card, essentially, we don't have that to show us the exact numbers in real time. Green Senator Dorinda Cox helped successfully move a motion for the inquiry. The former police officer says First Nations women and children's lives are being undervalued and federal government leadership is needed. We have to be aware of conscious and unconscious bias by those delivering systemic-based you know, responses. So... We have to understand how that plays itself out in relation to the judicial system. 
of a justice system. The government's national plan aims to end violence against women and children within one generation. And target 13 of the plan for closing the gap is for all forms of family violence and abuse against First Nations women and children to be reduced by at least 50% by 2031. But Senator Cox says she hasn't been satisfied with the government's response so far and says a holistic approach is needed. I think that we cannot devalue the issues of state sanctioned violence and you know, when we have rising child protection rates in this country, we have unacceptable rates of violence, um, incarceration. We're over-policed, under-policed. Where is there justice for the women and children in this country who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander? Thelma Schwartz is the Principal Legal Officer at the Queensland Indigenous Family Violence Legal Service, which represents more than 90 Indigenous communities across the state. She told yesterday's hearing that the national plan isn't helping keep First Nations women safe. Are we there yet? No, not anywhere near it. And I don't want to be taking part in another inquiry with respect that just pays lip service to those victims and survivors who are invisible. Senator Cox says truth-telling is needed at the highest level. We need systemic change and structural reform to allow truth-telling. Till that happens, we are going to continue to see a rise in, in the rates of violence against First Nations women. A report is due at the end of June. Chantal El Khoury reporting and in a statement the Federal Social Services Minister Amanda Wishworth says the government acknowledges the gaps in data and says improving the quality of Indigenous identification continues to be a priority. Farmers in the country's biggest wine region will hold a crisis meeting today to discuss their future amid historically low prices for their grapes. Some wineries are offering growers in South Australia's Riverland $120 a tonne for their fruit. That's the same price they were receiving in the 1970s. Eliza Balage reports. Harvesters are rolling through vineyards, with the bumper crop expected for vintage 2024. But Simi Gill is thinking about walking away from the grape business her late father built. This year is like the last year that we can make it through, basically. We just need to pay off any debts, finances or anything like whatever we can get from the winery at the moment. Her family is one of hundreds of Punjabi Australians farming in South Australia's Riverland, about three hours northeast of Adelaide. She's weighing up the costs of selling her water licences to pay her debts. It's difficult, but it outweighs the difficulty of where we are sitting currently. And I think each farmer now in the Riverland is wondering, how do we get out of this mess? Some of us are not sleeping. Some have probably gone into depression. And then we've got a lot of angry people asking what's going on. The industry was flourishing in recent years, but a global excess of red wine and China's tariffs have led to its darkest days yet. Mintu Bra joined his niece Simi and her family in the region 15 years ago. But now the return on investment for his vineyard has dried up. I think nearly 100 to 50 to 200 families are here and uh, they love farming. That's why we was promoting farming. But uh, now uh, I'm telling people, please wait for a couple of years. Grapes from these areas are primarily sold to produce bulk wine. The biggest buyer is multinational company Accolade Wine which produces brands like Banrock Station and Berry Estates. Charles Matheson is from the region's industry body Riverland Wine. 
which found 20% of local grape growers are considering leaving the industry in the next few years. It's not just a local issue either, it's a global issue. And there's no great outlook for red uh, wine grapes for the next foreseeable couple of years. He says substantial mental health issues are emerging. We really need some short-term help, though, to help pay for things like power bills while people work out what they can do. In a statement, Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said he'd raised the issues faced by the wine industry at a Food and Grocery Code roundtable last week. He said a vine pool scheme would require careful consideration to avoid unintended consequences. The ABC reached out to Accolade Wine for comment, but a response was not received by deadline. Eliza Balage. During the past 15 years, Australia has taken to rooftop solar power like no other country on earth, with about one in three homes now having a system. A new report suggests that love affair will only intensify, predicting the amount of solar power installed will soon overshadow all other forms of generation combined. Here's National Energy reporter Daniel Mercer. Like millions of Australians, Dennis Liner has watched the price of electricity soar in recent years. And like many householders, it's one of the reasons he installed solar panels on his house in Melbourne 18 months ago. Well, I thought, you know, this is the, this is the way things are going to happen environmentally and uh, also sort of cost-wise. And I think this is the way, I suppose, forward. So I thought I might as well get on the bandwagon and do it now. The semi-retired lawyer hasn't looked back. Even with cost hikes from his provider, he says his power bills have come down significantly. He and his wife have changed the way they use electricity to ensure more of their appliances run during the day when the solar panels are producing. He bought an electric vehicle and charges it at no cost on sunny days. And he says he'd do it all again tomorrow. Look, I'm definitely getting value out of it, yes. We've sort of changed the way we do things at home. My wife puts on the dishwasher in the morning when it's sunny and does the, uh, you know, loads of washing in the afternoon. They are habits typical of many rooftop solar users, and the similarities don't end there. Dennis Liner's installation has a capacity of 10 kilowatts, which is about five times greater than the average decade ago, but is now commonplace. That's the finding of a new report which forecasts Australia is on track to more than triple the amount of rooftop solar installed over the coming decades. Tristan Edis is the Director of Green Energy Markets, a Melbourne-based consultancy. I think no matter which way we cut this, solar PV is going to continue to grow to a level of capacity that uh, is likely to exceed the combined capacity of coal, gas and hydro combined, whether it be around 2030 or 2040. Um, it's just a matter of time, really. So this is going to be a huge part of our electricity mix uh, going forward and we really just need to plan for it to make the best use out of it. He argues rising energy prices and falling solar panel costs are driving ever-growing numbers of people towards the technology, a trend that's unlikely to reverse soon. What's more, Tristan Edis says poles and wires companies are getting better at accommodating solar, noting there are postcodes where 70% of homes have a system. And that means batteries are desperately needed to soak up the excess solar power. That's absolutely essential to make this all add up is batteries have to become dramatically cheaper than what they are today. Melbourne householder Dennis Liner agrees. He's keen to install a battery, but only if it pays for itself. I prefer batteries to be more affordable. That has to change dramatically, I think, to be really efficient. And I think if they drop that down, then I think the whole system will be a lot more uh, effective. Rooftop solar owner Dennis Liner. Daniel Mercer, the reporter there. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. 
I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. On Friday, a group of men managed to do what so many asylum seekers have tried before, arrive on Australian shores after what would have been a perilous journey from Indonesia. Today, the ABC's national political lead and Insiders host, David Spears, on why it remains such a heated issue and if anything really needs to change. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.